Christmas season is about, about a lot of things, but I want to tell you something that the Christmas season is about that maybe you don't think it's about, but it's about. The Christmas season is about enemies. The Christmas season is about conflict. And you're thinking, you've never been to my family gatherings. How do you know my family tree like that? How do you know? That's how it is. I understand statements like that hit our ears the wrong way. Words like enemy and words like conflict aren't supposed to show up in the same sentence as words like Christmas. But many, many of the songs and movies and sentiments of the Christmas season tell us that Christmas is about the opposite of conflict. Tell, tell us that Christmas is about the opposite of enemies, that it's about glad tidings and a cup of cheer and peace and being nice. And so to bring up conflict and enemies threatens to pollute what Christmas is about. But you and I cannot understand what Christmas is truly about if we don't see how it's connected to conflict. And I'm not talking first about conflict between people. But you and I will miss the real and lasting joy that the story of Christmas announces to us if we don't see how it's connected to our enemies. And I might not be talking about the enemies that maybe first come to your mind. Throughout this Advent season, we are looking at four songs that animate the Christmas story that we see in Luke 1 and 2. There are four songs sung by four different characters before and after the arrival of Jesus. And these four songs are impactful for us today because each song in a different way tells us why Jesus came And the more you and I understand the purpose of Jesus' life on earth, the more you and I understand the purpose for our lives on earth. They're inseparably connected. So last week we looked at Mary's song, and we saw that Jesus came to save the empty and scatter the full. And today, as we look at Zechariah's song that Matt and Meredith just read for us, we're going to see this, that Jesus came to rescue us from our enemies. Jesus came to rescue us from our enemies. That statement, that sentence is probably not new or that remarkable, that profound, like, Cam, you studied all week, and that's the result. That's what's happening. Well, it might not be that remarkable of a statement to you, but there's a lot more for us to think about in that short sentence than you may see at first. So I'd like for us to move through Zechariah's song, and we're going to see three truths about this rescue that we're talking about that Jesus came to rescue from, rescue us from our enemies. So if you're not already there, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, it's on page 856 in the blue, the blue pew Bible in front of you, if you want to use that Bible. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 67. And throughout this, we'll try to bring up some of the backstory because this is not just some random guy with some random song at some random moment. There's a lot of layers here. There's a lot going on before Zechariah's song and in the middle of it as well. Luke chapter 1, let's let's start in verse 67. Luke writes, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, we'll stop right there. Because the fact that Zechariah was saying anything out loud, is pretty amazing at this point. And this takes us a little bit to the backstory. 
because Zechariah had been unable to talk for the nine months of his wife's pregnancy. When the angel Gabriel first appeared to Zechariah and told him that he and his wife Elizabeth were going to have a baby, he responded with doubt saying, how, how is this possible? My wife and I are both old. We're past childbearing years. We're unable to have kids. How is this possible? And Gabriel, the angel, makes him silent until the baby is born. And I don't think this is necessarily like you're punished because you didn't believe. I think it, there's, there's some sense of that in there. But I think it's a lot more you need to listen for a while. You need to listen to what other people are saying. You need to listen to what the Lord is saying. You need to listen for a little bit. And then here's how things develop and change. Let's just jump right back up to this section before here, before verse 67. Jump with me to verse 57, and you'll see how all of this unfolded. Luke 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would, have call, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. This all harkens back to nine months before this, uh, the conversation with Gabriel, the angel. Verse 61, and they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. Zechariah couldn't talk. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. So when we get to verse 67 and Zechariah's talking, it's almost the overflow. He is filled with the Holy Spirit so that God himself is bringing truth out of his mouth. But it's not truth that's disconnected from his experience of the past few months. So it's when he opens his mouth and blesses God and they ask the question, what then will this child be? Zechariah's answering the question. And he's bringing out all the truth that the Lord has been stirring in his heart. So the first thing we're seeing here is that this is a powerful rescue. This is a powerful rescue. Zechariah sees the truth of God's promises come to life right before his eyes. He responds in worship. Now, Zechariah was a priest, a priest in, in, in the temple. And so this is a man that was steeped in the Old Testament. This is a man that knew the stories, that knew the phrases, that knew the promises, that knew all the truth of the Old Testament. And so his song is filled with phrases and allusions and connections to the Old Testament. But let's start in verse 68 where his song starts, and we'll begin to see how all of this is coming to life here. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Two key words there, visited and redeemed. Visited and redeemed. Both of those words are really key words in multiple places in the Old Testament. The word visited is a word that shows up multiple times when God responds to the needs of his people with his mercy and grace. 
I'll give you a couple examples. There's a time in the book of Exodus where it says, God saw the affliction of his people and visited them. And then another, there's more examples than this, but then another one in the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, Naomi and her family are, have experienced a great famine. And then it says, and they heard the Lord had visited his people and provided for them. So this word visited is not just the way maybe you and I use the word visited, but it means God sees a specific need or burden in his people and meets graciously and mercifully, meets that need. And it's connected to the second word, redeemed. God has visited and redeemed his people. To redeem is to pay a price, to pay a price to set someone free. And nowhere else in the Bible do you see the definition of that word more clearly pictured than in the story of the Exodus. That redeeming is to rescue someone or a people from bondage. So this is another Exodus connection, which is the salvation story of the Old Testament. That God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt after hundreds of years being there. And he graciously, mercifully, powerfully rescues them out. He redeems them. I want you to think about Zechariah for a minute. He had nine months of silence to consider the words that the angel Gabriel had spoken to him. He had nine months of silence to consider the conversation that happened between Mary and Elizabeth, the one we looked at last week earlier in Luke chapter 1. He had nine months of silence to consider all the promises and plans of God that come about in the Old Testament and how all of those things fit together. And he connects the dots. And in this moment that his son John is born, he realizes God is redeeming his people all over again. God is doing what he's done before, but in a bigger way. He sees the seeds of God's ancient promises begin to pop out of the soil. And he's saying, it's happening. God's promises are coming true. He says, what God's doing now is just like what he did back then. And then he adds to this in verse 69. Look with me there, Luke 1, verse 69. That God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. That phrase, horn of salvation, is, again, an Old Testament phrase that you and I, we're not, we're not throwing that phrase around in everyday conversation. But, but if you think with me about the horns of an ox or a bull are the symbol of their strength and their power. So Zechariah is saying that God has sent a strong Savior to us. God has sent a powerful rescuer to us. But he's not talking about his son. He's talking about Mary's son. He doesn't talk about his own son, John, who was just born until we get all the way down to verse 76. He's talking about a different child. He's talking about a different person. He knows his son, John, is the forerunner. His son, John, is the messenger that's going to bring this about. Well, if this is the powerful rescue, this horn of salvation, visiting and redeeming his people, What will this powerful rescue accomplish? What's God doing? Look at verse 71. That, this is the purpose, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
That's not really a verse that you're putting on the Christmas card this year. Hey, Merry Christmas. We're saved from the hand of our enemies. And from all who hate us, we don't hate you. Here's a Christmas card. It doesn't feel Christmassy, right? But I think it'd be a really bad idea to skip over this verse. Because this verse takes us to the heart of what Christmas is about. This is why I said at the beginning, Christmas is about enemies. Christmas is about conflict. The enemies Zechariah is referring to have been the main enemies for every person that has ever lived. They weren't just enemies of his day, and we have different enemies now, and so it's not connected. It's the same enemies then and the same enemies now. And one of the enemies that he's talking about is the enemy who is a great liar, the enemy who loves to kill, steal, and destroy, the enemy who ruins lives with sin and sickness and bitterness and death. Satan himself, the devil, the deceiver, that's one of the enemies. But there's an even closer enemy to us than the devil because inside every single one of us, me and you both, is an enemy that spoils our hearts. What the Bible calls sin, or the Bible sometimes uses the phrase the flesh. That it's not just bad stuff out there. I got bad stuff in me that pushes against God, that pulls away from the Lord, that rejects him. And this enemy in us fights against our soul and pulls us away from the Lord. And so sin is not just, this enemy is not just a bad habit. It's not just a bad decision. It is our deepest and greatest problem. No amount of social change, no amount of political reform, no amount of progress in technology can get rid of it. All those things can be good, but those things will never get rid of our biggest problem. The reason that I'm harping on this so much is because it's really important for us to consider who we think the main enemy is because who you think the enemy is determines who you think the Savior is. Who you think the enemy is determines what you think the Savior came to do. So if the enemy is something primarily a bad thing out there, then if Jesus is the Savior, he came to get rid of the bad thing out there. If the enemy is primarily something political, as you see examples in the Bible, people tend to think that, the Romans or whatever it may be, then the Savior's coming to get rid of the bad political thing. But I think what Zechariah is celebrating is that, no, God has come to get rid of the greatest problem any human has ever had. The problem of our sin And because sin is the enemy, only Jesus can be the Savior. And anything else we look to will always fall short because no other Savior can separate us from that enemy. No other Savior can rescue us from that enemy. And I think this is felt in a unique way during this time of year. You feel, maybe in ways we wouldn't label it like this, but we feel this enemy at work in unique ways this time of year. I really like the way that Alistair Begg explains it. He says this, the blues that come after Christmas, as we get beyond the busyness and distraction of the festivities and think deep down, I don't have the answer. There's not a gift I could buy or a gift I can receive that seems to satisfy There's not a vacation I can enjoy. There's not a book I could read or a piece of music I could listen to that will actually fill the hole. When we feel this, we are really saying, God, please take the space between us and fill it up some way. 
We are asking God to redeem us from the sin we have chosen, from the slavery we can't escape, from the debt we cannot repay. Through things like Christmas and other things throughout the year, we we prop up these expectations and these hopes, and on the other side of it, we always feel a lack of fulfillment and just this emptiness or this, uh, that wasn't what I was hoping it was going to be. That didn't fill me the way I was hoping it was going to fill me. Because none of these things can be our Savior, because none of these things can save us from our sin. Only Jesus can. Understanding why Christmas is such good news starts with understanding why sin is such bad news. And understanding our greatest problem and our greatest enemy, and then we can start to see this powerful rescue that Jesus has brought about. The second thing that I would like for us to see about this rescue is not just that it's a a powerful rescue, it's also a promised rescue. It's a promised rescue. And you see this start to show up in verse 72. Luke chapter 1, verse 72. Let's look there together. Zechariah is continuing to, to celebrate this, and he says that the Lord has saved us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. We didn't didn't spend time in this verse, but this showed up even earlier in verse 70 where Zechariah said that God has done this as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This brings to us one of the, the driving forces that's been at work in Zechariah's heart over the past nine months that that has led to this Holy Spirit led moment of worship. That God's promises have come true. God's promises have come full circle. And Mary's song celebrated the same thing last week. It's, I understand it's, it's, um, it's difficult for us to completely relate to what it would have been like to experience this. But let's just try to put ourselves in their shoes for a second. Imagine that you lived your entire life hearing that one day God promised to rescue his people. And one day he was going to do it. And every year, the people around you reminded you of that. Hey, one day God's going to rescue his people. One day God's going to rescue his people. And your parents told you that. And before that, your grandparents told your parents that. And before that, your great-grandparents told your grandparents who told your parents who were telling you that. And before that, your great-great-grandparents told your great-grandparents who told your grandparents who told your parents who told you that. I'd go further, but I don't think I could do that without just falling all over my words in that moment. But it just goes on and on, and all these generations of people have only ever known the promise, but they've never seen the fulfillment. You've never met anyone that has ever known the fulfillment of this promise. You've only ever heard the promise. And now, after thousands of years, this promise that has only ever been heard or read, or spoken, can now be seen. God's promised mercy takes on flesh. God's promised mercy has come to life. It's literally jumping off the page in this time. And this is what Zechariah is describing when he says, God has remembered his holy covenant. This is the mercy he promised to our fathers. I love the phrase there in verse 72. 
that God has remembered his holy covenant. God remembering something he promised doesn't mean he simply brings it up in his mind. It means he is actively bringing about what he said he would do. It's not as if God had forgotten about the promises he made in the Old Testament. That was a long time ago. Lots happened between then and now, so they're kind of out of God's mind. And then he remembers, oh my goodness, I made that promise. i got to scramble and make this thing happen. No, God never forgets his promises. His promise never failed. And so when it says God remembered, it means God is acting on it. That God is on the move. That God's promises are starting to pop off the page. They're going from 2D to 3D. And I love what one author pointed out as I was uh, just researching and studying this passage this week. He said that it's not a coincidence that the first words from God to his people after 400 years would come to Zechariah whose name means the Lord has remembered. That's what his name means. The Lord has remembered. Zechariah was not a unique name. There are a lot of people named Zechariah. But the Lord brings all this about in the life of a man whose name means what, he's, what God is doing. And in, in these verses, Zechariah mentions, in verse 69, he mentions David. In verse 73, he mentions Abraham. And God guaranteed to both of those men and to many others that he would one day rescue his people from their enemies. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see all these stories that are all these little rescues that take place. These little previews of what God was going to do. And they were all hints of this greater rescue that God was working to bring about. So what God was doing in Abraham's life wasn't just about Abraham. And what God was doing in David's life wasn't just about David. Kids that have been in seeds with us, and and Trevor's been helping us teach in seeds as well. You remember we've been talking about that the Bible is one book with one author and one main subject. Because the Bible is one story. And so all the Old Testament is leading to this moment. It's like when you see, if you've seen this before, um, on TV or on the news or something like that, when you see that there's a, a space shuttle that's launched. When the space shuttle launches, you actually have the main rocket in the middle, but you have these, these booster rockets that are on the sides that get it to a certain point, And then after a certain point, those boosters drop off and fall into the ocean. But those booster rockets aren't the main rocket, but they're getting that rocket to a point so it can continue to move forward, and then they fade to the back. This is what every character in the Old Testament is doing to get it to the point of Jesus. They're, they're moving the story forward, and when their role is done, they fade to the back, but the main promise keeps going. And then it moves forward a little bit more, and then that character fades to the back, and the main promise keeps going. And then it moves forward a little bit more, and then they fade to the back, and the main promise keeps going all the way till we get to the point that we're seeing in Luke 1 and 2 that the Savior is about to be born. And did you notice in Zechariah's song, he talks in past tense a lot. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. There's a lot of past tense going on. As if God has already done it, but Jesus hasn't been born yet. And he certainly hasn't gone to the cross and and come back from the dead yet. 
But I think Zechariah has looked back on God's promises and seen his confidence that they're coming true, and he knows this is as good as done. This is as good as accomplished. Christmas had to happen because God promised it would happen. So it's a powerful promise and a powerful rescue. And then the last thing that I would like for us to see this morning is it's a proclaimed rescue. A proclaimed rescue. And Zechariah knows this, and he is celebrating this, and he is worshiping God in this moment, but he knows this message and this hope and this promise aren't supposed to stop with him and his son. At the end of the song, Zechariah starts to talk about his one-week-old son, John. And he describes John in light of who Jesus is. I'll show you what I mean in verse 76. He says, and you, child, you can just picture him looking at his one-week-old son. He never dreamed he would have a child after all these years. And he's looking at his one-week-old son, and he says, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Zechariah describes his son as the prophet of the Most High. So the most important thing about John, his boy, is not that he's Zechariah's son. The most important thing is not that he's a priest's son. The most important thing is not that he's related to Mary. The most important thing is not that he's just a generic prophet. The most important thing is that he is going to be a prophet of the Most High. The most important thing is that he will go before the Lord to prepare his way. And even as you continue reading Luke's gospel and the other gospels, you really don't learn much else about John besides that. That that's his role. That's his job. That he is the one God has set apart as Jesus' opener, as his forerunner, as the guy that's coming on to say, he's here. And his sole job is to prepare the way for Jesus by preaching the good news of what God is doing. That's what Zechariah says, look what he he says to verse 77, that his son's going to be a prophet of the Most High. He's going to prepare the way. Here's why. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The most important thing about John is how he points to Jesus. He was the last to go back to that, that same analogy, he was the last kind of booster rocket to get it to the final moment. A number of years after this, when Jesus and John were both in their 30s, Jesus says something really fascinating about John. Really fascinating about John. This is from Matthew chapter 11. Verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Coming from the mouth of Jesus, that's an incredible statement. There has never been another man born that is greater than John the Baptist, he says. Jesus himself says, John was greater than Abraham. John was greater than David. John was greater than Isaiah. John was greater than Solomon. How? Why? How could he say that? Or is this Jesus just kind of trying to pump up his his buddy? I don't think it's that. 
even though all of those men pointed to Jesus in some way, only John was given the job of pointing to Jesus and saying, that's the one. That's the Savior. He's the promised one. Just like we sang, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only John was given that job. And John would say, so turn from your sin and believe the gospel. All the other people in the Old Testament and throughout the story of the Bible, they're all pointing to a time or an era. John was able to point to a person with skin and bones and could talk and you could see him. But there's another part to what Jesus says in Matthew 11. That's even more fascinating, I think. Same verse, right after he says, that there there hasn't been one born greater than John the Baptist. He says this, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John the Baptist is greater than David, Abraham, all those people. But then the one that's least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is saying that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've trusted him, if you are serving Jesus in your life, you are greater than John the Baptist. Think about that for a second. Not in every way, of course, but in a specific way. John the Baptist was greater because his ability to point to Jesus was greater than all that came before him. And believers today, Christians, followers of Christ today, are even greater than that because our ability to point to Jesus is greater than John the Baptist's ability to point to Jesus. There's a sense in which we can say more about Jesus than John could. We can see even more dots that have been connected than Zechariah could in his song. We know the Savior has died. John didn't live long enough to see that. He was beheaded. We we know he's risen again. We know he's reigning in heaven right now. We know he sent his Holy Spirit to his people to spread the gospel around the world. We have an entire Bible in front of us. John didn't have that. So this means greatness in the kingdom of God and greatness for us is not about how we look or how much money we have or how old we are or what talents we have or where we're from. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about the privilege of pointing to Jesus. And one author summed it up like this. He said, human beings find their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. Do you believe that? Human beings find their greatest importance in pointing to Jesus. If we just try to bring all this together here. When we see this proclaimed rescue and think back to a powerful rescue, a promised rescue, this means we have the responsibility and the privilege and the joy to go and proclaim Jesus to the people God has put around us. And we can do so with confidence and we can do so with hope, knowing who God was is who he is and who he will be. Knowing what God has done is what he is doing and what he will do. We have this promise-keeping God who powerfully rescues his people from their enemies. He did it way back in the day of the Exodus. He did it in Zechariah's day. He's doing it today. 
The fact that any of us are in here and have put our faith in Christ is evidence of that. That God is still working. This God is not, well, I've just forgotten my promises again. He's active right now. This is why I'm excited. I'm so excited about what God is doing in and through our church right now. And I'm so excited about what God is going to do. I have no idea what the future holds. But I've seen what God's done in the past. And I see what he's doing right now. And I know no one, no other God's ever going to sit on the throne but that God. So he's always going to do the things that he's always done. He's always going to save people. He's always going to rescue us from our enemies. He's always going to keep his promises. He's always going to work his power in his way that there's people like Zechariah and us that say, I'm not sure. And he'll say, just trust me to keep my promises. That's what he's doing right now. So Christmas, maybe it was a little inaccurate to say at the beginning, Christmas is about enemies. And it's better to say Christmas is about rescue. Christmas is about salvation. Christmas is about I was drowning and there was nothing I could do to save myself, but the tender mercy of our God reached down and pulled me up. Notice Zachariah's song is not a song about how people rescue themselves. Zechariah's song is a song about God's great mercy stepping into our darkness to rescue us from our enemies and then send us out to proclaim to a dark world that's held under the power of the same enemies, hey, there's hope, there's salvation, there's rescue from this. That's what he was, God is doing then, that's what he's doing now.